podcast where we are simplifying the good life. I'm Armando Luna. And I'm Joan Pettit, broadcasting from our homes in Portland, Oregon, nestled in the heart of Cascadia. This is the show where we bring you somewhat irreverent conversations about the intricacies of thinking locally with a global perspective and enjoying the best that life has to offer along the way. Covering bicycling, trains, and transit adventures and life hacks. And today, Henry Grabar from Slate Magazine. Oh, cool. Yeah, this will be good. Yeah, we have a, a great conversation with Henry coming up. So I'm, I'm excited for folks to hear that. How are you, Armando? I'm doing extra well. Extra well. Extra well. well. It's, uh, it's hitting springtime in Portland, and the sun has been out, and I've been doing the bike every day in April. Uh, so yeah, that's a lot better than, than was what was happening last year. <laughs> so you've, so you've been riding your bike specifically every single day in April. Yes. As part of a, is this an Armando challenge or is no, this I a think challenge? This, I think it's a national bike every day or something like that. I don't even know. Oh, I don't even know. Is this one of those bike of those month things. things? Yeah. Something like that. Gosh, I probably got an email about this. You know, I, <laughs> Those are, I do those when I'm biking to work because it's easy enough anyway, but uh-huh. uh, not now. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not like the, it's not like the bike to work challenge or anything like that. It's just bike every day. Yeah. I'm, I, I, I would have a real hard time biking to work. I'd have to, <laughs> I'd have to leave <laughs> and then come back. Yeah. Bike to coffee and then come back. That's what yeah, I've been trying right. to do also. Is oh, that's good. Coffee. Yeah. Just incorporating some more of that movement into our lives so hey listen um you and i i don't i don't know if you've talked about this on any of the previous episodes have you talked at all about uh the hill repeats the hill killers hill killers killers. Uh, yeah i don't remember possibly Hmm. might have brought it up well i uh armando and i are both yeah let's talk (laughs) about it uh our friend Maria Schur, uh, is that how you say Maria's last name? Maria Schur. I believe that's correct. Yeah, who also goes by Bicycle Kitty, uh, did a great challenge. Actually, there's a there's a piece in in Bike Portland about it. Um, back in I guess January or so. So so Maria is a big fan of riding hills. Um, I guess because she wasn't a fan of hills, and so then she just sort of leaned into it and asked folks if they wanted to pers- participate in a. In, in hill repeats in April and May. And uh, the idea was that she would find us hills in our neighborhoods. And then we would at five different times over the course of two months do five hill repeats. Uh, when I signed up for this in January, I knew it was a good idea, even though I knew I wouldn't think it was a good idea in April. <laughs> Cause I just have not been on my, uh, I've been on my commuter bike a little bit, but I haven't been on my road bike hardly at all. And, and so April came around and I was a little grumbly about it. Uh, Maria said as one of her rules, no complaining, which was very helpful for me to hear. What's the difference about complaining versus grumbly, though? I don't know. There's a. Uh, I think it could be grumbly without complaining. I, I think I was. I think no complaining was maybe too Maria. Oh, I think so too. I think that for which sure, is fair. Yeah. Which is fair because you know what I loved about it, man. Maria hustled all over town finding those hills. What was it like? Forty different hills. Yeah. So I. So you know, she put out a, a notice like, "Hey, if you're interested, let me know, and I'll go find a hill for you." And 
and she capped it off at 55 people. 55 people responded. Actually, more than 55 responded. Um, so she had to cap it off at 55. And uh, I think she has some help, too, with some of the hills. Um, and she, I think she used a combination of, like, Google Maps or something and, and actually scouting out the neighborhoods um, because she's been here in Portland a long time, so she's familiar with the city. Um, but, yeah, to organize 55 hill climbs or 55 people, that's... That's a lot of extra work, I think. <laughs> That's a lot of hill climbs. Well, and what I like about it and what she talks about in the Bike Portland article, too, is that she was trying to find hills that, I mean, I can't remember there were all the criteria, but one of them was that they had to have a good turnaround stop. And right. I had already ridden my hill uh, when I read that, and I was like, it does have a really good turn. I mean, that that was very, it was very thoughtfully done, and um I I was not feeling jazzed to do it, but Armando, then you did your first one on April 1st, the very <laughs> first day. And you posted that it took you like 35 minutes or something uh-huh. and that it was a great door thing to, to do. Yeah, door to door. And uh, and then I was like, okay, I got to go do this. And so I did. And um, it was like easier than I expected, which was I mean, not to say that it was easy, but it wasn't that. I mean, it was fine, especially because the hill that I did is one that I think I've only ridden on my, like, heavier town bike before, mm-hmm. but doing it on my road bike was fine. It was really close to my house, and it was kind of fun. And then <laughs> at your suggested for, suggestion, for the first time, I downloaded Strava just so that I could have the image of the elevation. <laughs> yeah, it makes pretty pictures. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was very satisfying. Not the map, not the route. Right, but right. Just no, the, no. The elevation chart. So, yeah. So, so that's been a really, um, I mean, I, I've only gone once. I haven't gone and done my second one yet. Uh, I didn't go, I didn't go last week, but I'm going to go soon. And I think it's just a nice way. Yeah. To basically have a short ride. That's, you know, good exercise from home where you feel like you accomplish something, but also, you can, especially if you're working from home, you can basically fit it in during the day or right after work. It was yeah, easy. So. That was uh, that was my interest in it. Also, was to be able to do it at lunchtime. I mean, I'm I I'm pretty much holding myself to the lunchtime. I could take lunch when I want to take lunch, um, but if I knew if I could do the hill climb uh, repeats within like a lunchtime, roughly thirty minute uh, time period, I would probably be more likely to do it than not and uh, it's interesting the hill that uh maria picked for me i had never ridden on it before um oh let me take that back i've ridden down it before i've never ridden up it before so uh yeah it's it's, i like it it's not bad i've I've only done my one so far i've got i'm in my week two so i'm probably going to do it once a week even though we only need to do five i'll probably probably end up doing eight um, just to get myself going. And, and I do want to say it's not like I'm in shape and I'm totally my tip top shape doing this. I'm getting back to biking shape. So, um, I expect my, my time, if I'm going door to door to be a lot lower than, I think it was 32 or 33 minutes. So that's another goal of mine to shorten that time. Yeah, that was actually another one for me to see. I mean, I'm not going to get too crazy with that because at some point there's, I mean, you know, because I like also stopped in the turnaround spot and like had some water 
So I could, you know, make it shorter and also be dehydrated. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But, but yeah, it was really satisfying to do. And I think that I, you know, it's interesting because I hadn't actually thought about how long it would take. And when you posted the time that was, very motivating for me. Good. Um, so thank you for, for doing that. Yeah, yeah it's I'm, a good, I'm yeah, go ahead. all about the social media. So I totally had to, uh, once I saw that graph, I'm like, Oh, I totally have to post this graph. <laughs> <laughs> and then some, somebody else told me, they go, Oh, thanks for posting that. And then I, I saw somebody else post that their graph, you know, and I don't know. I think it me, makes big... I did. No, I did. somebody besides you. I mean, Oh, <laughs> uh, cause there's a, there's actually a Facebook page where people are posting their, yeah. their rides and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, it's, uh, I need that social interaction to keep me going. I think. Oh, you know, I tell you what, the best part of the bike Portland piece was that there's a three-year-old who's participating oh, really? and she found like a, <laughs> a, a, a ramp in a church parking lot or oh, something wow. for the three-year-old. It was quite, quite sweet. I'll link to the, you know, what we'll do is I'll yeah, put the, um, I'll put the bike Portland in our headlines. I'll include the link to the bike Portland story. So yeah, anybody who, I mean, even if you're sort of a, an urban bike person, there's, you know, there, there, I think a lot of us are trying to find ways to get back on our bikes. You don't have to do hill repeats, but you know, find a hill that's that's reasonable to do on your bike and, and do it a couple times or a little loop, but do it a couple times. It can just be, I don't know, especially now that finally the weather feels like it's getting a little nicer and a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel. Totally. It's, yeah, nice to find reasons to be back on our bikes. Thanks so much to Slate writer Henry Grabar for joining us today. Hello, Henry. Hi there. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Thanks. Can you, uh, for our for our listeners who haven't been uh, avid readers of your work in Slate, can you just tell folks a little bit about yourself? Sure. I am a staff writer at Slate, and I write about cities. So I write about um, architecture and infrastructure, uh, real estate, and climate change, um, and uh, really anything else that, that that comes across my radar. And uh, to more to the point, uh, I write a lot about riding a bike because um, I'm a big bike rider. Uh, have been um, riding a bike in the city since I was in high school, um, and it's an important part of my life. And I'm lucky enough to have a job that allows me to uh, to also, um, you know, sort of think about that and and do that for work. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is that I'm also working on a book for Penguin Press about parking. And the book is about how the pursuit of parking has shaped the look and feel and function of the American uh, built environment. So um, maybe this will sound very familiar to your listeners or maybe not, but um, it'll cover parkings, the way parking changes uh, housing affordability and urban design, um, the way the pursuit of parking has motivated you know, urban renewal and it plays out in the way that architecture looks and, 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 and has its effects in the environment and stormwater runoff and stuff like that. So, um, that's what I'm doing sort of at night uh, when I'm not, um, working on articles for Slate. 
Well, it's interesting. Um, yeah, the parking is such an interesting thing. A friend of mine, a friend of mine and I were discussing parking <laughs> as, as one does at a bonfire during the pandemic. And uh, this friend described parking as an issue that seems really boring. And so a lot of people don't pay attention to it. And it's actually incredibly important and has such a big impact, especially on cities. I agree with that assessment. Um, architects sometimes say that it is the first thing that gets um, planned out when you start on a site. It is you arrange the parking and then everything else follows from there. Um, the number of units in a building, the number of floors, the way the building looks, how much the apartments cost, all that stuff follows from the arrangement of the parking. Um, so that is just one example of the way that parking is this sort of hidden force, um, like dark energy pushing the universe of, of urban objects and houses and amenities further and further apart. Um, I would also say that I agree with your friend's assessment that it is boring. Um, and I like to think of this book as like in the, in the tradition of books like um, cod or salt or sand, like one of these books that, that takes a really mundane object and hopefully um reveals it as a as a sort of an epiphany for for readers that uh for whom they, they just can't look back at this thing again um without uh thinking of all the th the, the new things they know about it um but uh, at the same time um people do get very animated about parking so in that sense it does it does not have that in common with something like um you know salt or brick or whatever like uh, people love to talk about parking everybody thinks they're an expert in parking and people love to fight about parking you know that's a really good point because people do i feel like there are a lot of folks who uh yeah will generally be sort of you know progressive urban folks but then as soon as they can't park in front of their house or because an apartment is going up near or like an apartment has gone up and they perceive that these folks are taking their parking spots, then um, it, it sort of becomes people get, I, I mean, they kind of become nimbies about it, I guess, in a way, or they get, they feel very like entitled to this public space, essentially. Yeah. I think that's something you've seen in a lot of cities where um, an older generation bought in maybe when houses were a little cheaper um, when crime was a little higher, it was a sort of a different environment and they, they felt like the parking space in front of their house or apartment was sort of part of the package. And as cities return to, um, and as neighborhoods return to, uh, higher populations in some cases, not as high as they were in say the 1950s or sixties, but nevertheless, um, higher than they were in the eighties and nineties, you start to see competition for this, um, scarce and finite resource uh, become a really divisive thing. And it serves as uh, a real inhibitor to, um, to housing growth and to infill housing because um, parking, when it's included as part of the building, uh, makes the units very expensive and distorts the architecture and produces these sort of gangly, unsightly buildings perched on top of garages. Um, so that's not good. Um, that also encourages people to drive because you've given them parking spaces. But if you put the parking out on the street, you ask people to park on the street, then you then you put the new neighbors into conflicts with the old neighbors, 
And the result of that is that the old neighbors will advocate against the very construction of the building and against the very arrival of these new people um, because they rightly perceive them as a threat to their control over the local street space. Yeah, well, that's a, yeah, yeah, that's a big issue. And I think that, yeah, I I do think more people are, are starting to become aware of it as something that's bigger than just, you know, what we're dealing with on our street or in our neighborhood, especially, yeah, like big parking lots for apartment buildings or, or things like that. Now, if you could, if you could sort of wave a magic wand and create parking policy without changing other things, do you know what you would want it to be for kind of, let's say for cities or your neighborhood or, or whatever. I mean, is there like, there's, I don't know, maybe there's not like one easy answer, but if you had a magic wand and, and yet we were still driving, you know, what would you want to, yeah. There's kind of two classic components of that are considered best, um, best practices in parking policy. And these do not come, I did not invent these or discover these, these are sort of the life's work of, the great Donald Shoup, who is the author of The High Cost of Free Parking, and he is sort of the uh, eminence grise of parking studies and, and one of the um, characters who populates my book. Um, he's, he, 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 his two big arguments um, for cities are that they um, first uh, charge for street parking um, because it is a scarce, uh, it's a scarce resource, and there is more demand than there is supply. And by charging for parking, you not only um, reorder the places that people park, so that, for example, around a downtown commercial strip, um, workers who are there all day, owners of shops, will park further away, maybe walk ten minutes. And that, in turn, leaves the spaces in front of the shops, which maybe go at a slightly higher rate, free for customers, shoppers, for people who might go to a restaurant for a couple hours. That kind of sorting just doesn't happen when all the parking is free. Um, and the same goes for, for residential neighborhoods as well. Like, unless you create some kind of disincentive to parking on the street, you are going to pr- create this enormous barrier to adding infill housing because you're going you're gonna to create a natural fight between old and new neighbors over over this this scarce parking resource. So by charging for parking, um, you force people maybe at the margins to reconsider car ownership, and and if not that, then then at least where they park their car. Um, and that's a tremendous opportunity because uh, I I'm not so naive as to think that you know everyone's gonna suddenly give up their car. Um, when we start charging for parking, but most American families own more than one car. So if you can get a family with three cars to go down to two and get a family with two cars to go to one, um, then that makes a huge difference. And parking is, um, studies have shown parking is a huge, huge factor in determining, um, whether people own cars and how they use them. Um, so rather than focus on the gas tax or congestion pricing or all these sort of complicated to implement and politically unpopular, um, strategies to reduce car ownership, it can be as simple as proper pricing of parking. So, so that is one of the, the, the magic wand, um, objectives. And, and the second, uh, which is related is to stop requiring new, businesses, um, residences, 
shops, restaurants, et cetera, to include parking spaces in the building as a condition of, of operating. So when you require a new apartment building to include, you know, two spaces for every apartment, as I was saying earlier, you drive up the cost of the rents and you encourage the new residents to drive. Um, and that is true of restaurants too. You, you push everything further away. The cost of that parking lot gets integrated into the, the bill when you go there and eat. And if you're somebody who rides a bike to the restaurant, then, then that should get on your nerves. Um, so that would be the other uh, and related component where there's room for reform. Yeah, and I, oh, Armando, go ahead. You're going to say something. Henry, how, what would you, as, as instead of charging for parking, where would you put um, neighborhoods that have parking permits? For example, maybe in my neighborhood, because I'm inner city, um, I'm okay to park there because I live here. But if other people come there on a time limit, for example. That's a great question. There, that's a subject of much dispute in the parking world. Um, some people feel that residential parking permits are discriminatory. Um, there was a case, uh, the very first residential parking permits were implemented in Arlington, Virginia. Um, and the case went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court um, question of whether it was fair and, I guess, constitutional um, to restrict the public right of way in this way um, to people who live in the neighborhood. Um, I think there are situations where that makes a lot of sense because you um, you do really do want to encourage people to be in favor of, um, say, infill housing. Um, and if what it takes to get people comfortable with the idea of a new apartment building on their block um, maybe with some young college age car free residents, if what it takes to get them comfortable with that is a system of residential parking permits, then I say, absolutely do that. Um, but the other situation in which you see residential parking permits is um, neighborhoods uh, that actually have a fair amount of um, empty curb space and they start using residential parking permits and the blocks start to empty out. And at that point, um, especially during the day, you've got this public resource that's being tremendously underused um, because it's restricted to, to residents only. So that's an, ex an example of that would be like the residential, rather posh residential neighborhood that's adjacent to uh, the Uni University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA. There, you'll see the curbs empty all day. Um and everybody who works in that neighborhood, which is to say housekeepers and cooks and nannies, um, handymen, gardeners, all those people have to park somewhere else because the curbs have been reserved exclusively for residents. So that's a case where I'd say that in that, in that instance, that's not really a good way to manage um, what is, again, a, a limited resource in the city. Right. And that becomes like a, a class issue, too, of like, you know, wealthier neighborhoods sort of uh, like hoarding parking so that, you know, those disruptive students or non-residents can't can't take advantage of these same of the same public space. Right. And and the other issue with parking permits is that once one neighborhood has parking permits, then everybody who might be a one-time or a day parker or a worker or something like that parks in the adjacent neighborhood. And then that neighborhood has a strong incentive to get their parking permits. And so it, it sort of um, 
it functions as, as it's sort of contagious, the parking permit thing. And you wind up with neighborhoods like in Austin, Texas, around the South Congress district, where all the blocks that have decided that their curb space will be um, open to anyone are completely jammed and it's impossible to park. And all the blocks that have residential perming, parking permits are, are virtually empty all the time. Um, so again, that is not optimal from a you know management perspective, but uh, but sorting it out is a thorny political problem because as we were saying, like um, a lot of the you know infill and especially pre-war housing that doesn't come with its own parking spaces, um, people have bought those apartments and rented those houses um, sort of with the assumption that it's going to come with curb parking, and so when that resource becomes competitive. Um, you know, people get mad. Well, I want to shift a little bit to talking about uh, some of the other ways that that the use of of public space has changed, uh, especially in the past year. Um, and you've written about this uh, about you know how during and and we've talked about this on the podcast too uh, about you know during the pandemic in the U.S. and Canada and Europe and perhaps in other parts of the world, cities have. Many cities have shifted how they are using spaces. You know, we saw a real decrease in automobile traffic, at least temporarily a year ago. We saw cities building or we were seeing cities building more bike lanes. Um, One of our our listeners sent us in a link. I haven't watched it yet, but to something from the BBC World Service about all the changes that have been happening in Europe. Certainly Paris has been Uh, pretty, it seems pretty progressive along these lines. I know here in Portland, people have been frustrated that, that our city hasn't done more of this, but um, so one, so our, one of our listeners specifically said, you know, how do we make these gains permanent and continue the momentum? And I guess I'm also wondering along these lines, you know, do you think that this is a, yeah, do you think that this is cities trying to drive are cities being responsive to people or are they trying to lead people if you can sort of just talk about talk about some of these changes we've seen actually it's it's so hard to say i mean well in terms of the changes we've seen it's been among i think the most dramatic changes i've seen to public space in my lifetime um i'm thinking about the two places that i've been primarily during the pandemic um I was in Chicago at first, uh, then New York, um, and then finally in Paris, where my uh, partner teaches at a university there. Um, in New York, uh, the city passed, um, basically made it possible for restaurants to acquire uh, the parking spaces in front of their storefronts for seating um, in summer of 2020. And what we've seen in the months since is um, more than 6,000 restaurants expand into parking spaces in front of their, um, in front of their establishments. Um, and the effect when you're walking down the street is extraordinary. It's like the whole city has been turned inside out and all this stuff that used to occur inside now occurs outside. And it really has transformed the feel of the street. And, um, in some places I think, um, has a kind of, traffic calming effect and, and just establishes the street as a, as a, as a place for people. Um, not just with the like physical space they take up, but the, the sort of general vibe it creates. It's really, it's really incredible to see. Um, in, in Paris where sidewalk cafes have been more common, 
Um, the big change has been bike lanes, where they've taken major, um, major thoroughfares and set aside uh, an enormous amount of space for bicycles to try and accommodate people who do not want to ride on the crowded mass transit system. Um, and that has also been a tremendous success. They've seen a lot more people riding. They've seen a lot more women riding. Um, and the again, the effect there is is, is really just stunning to behold. I mean, the, the Rue de Rivoli, which is the main east-west thoroughfare that runs through central Paris, it's now closed to private cars. Um, and it's about half bike lane now. So we're talking like maybe 25, 30 feet wide. And you see people on scooters, on bicycles. Um, you see children riding bikes, which would have been completely unheard of um, two or three years ago on that street. And the, the most incredible thing to me about it is how quiet it is. You, you forget, even when cars aren't honking, that the ambient noise of being in a traffic jam, of the creaking tires and the rumbling engines and um, the, the brake pads, like all that noise kind of adds up um, without you even thinking about it. And then when it's gone, you just remember like, oh yeah, that's what it, that's what like it sounds like when the when the street is is not full of cars um now in response to the question of whether people are leading that or politicians are leading i think that's very tricky to say in paris certainly politicians the mayor of paris Andalgo, maybe you have already talked about her on this show um she's very pro-bike and i think has definitely led Paris to places they would not have gotten if they were, you know, deciding every bike lane um, by a plebiscite or something like that, or, or, you know, via the equivalent of like neighborhood councils or community boards or something like that. Um, in other cities, I would say that in American cities, you know, where, where so much more of our public space is turned over to cars, I would say there's a lot more latent demand. When you pull people about this, you ask them, what would they like to see in their neighborhoods? Um, the demand for car-free space is often really high. People get really excited about the idea of like teaching their kids to bike on their street, right? Um, and people get, you know, lots of people ride bikes, you know? Unfortunately, um, many of them may think of it as a pastime that's reserved for a trip to the park or something like that because they don't feel safe. Um, so in, in, in the case of American cities where drivers tend to be um, super loud, um, super visible in the political scene, um, fairly well connected, uh, there's just so much lined up for the status quo and against these changes. Um, so, I, But I do think there's tremendous demand, and, that, and that's been borne out in the places where we've seen some of this. I think there's been a lot of enthusiasm for it. And I hope that politicians will um, have the initiative to keep it up. I, I know in New York, the restaurants and the parking spaces are not going anywhere. I mean, that has just become a part of what it's like to be in New York City in the summer. It, um, it feels like here in Portland, anytime there is an effort to add a bike lane, and I know this happens in other places too, bike lanes, uh, when the city is, you know, maybe doing some repaving uh, and going to take away parking and and shift to bike lanes, even though there's some evidence showing that that can be good for businesses, we end up with a situation where one or two business owners will protest and fuss about the loss of parking. And then our local uh, Bureau of Transportation 
will, you know, they're trying to balance different, different parties. I think the folks who work there are probably sympathetic to arguments for more bike lanes and better transit. Uh, but it does seem like there are definitely forces um, that sometimes went out, even if it's not sort of for evidence-based reason. And so it's interesting to hear you talk about that latent demand, because I feel like there's also a lot of pushback, but maybe that's a different issue here in Portland um, or Seattle than other cities where sometimes there's also the impression that, you know, too much has been given over to bikes already, which I don't think is true, but yeah. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. I mean, we certainly, I think you see that in a lot of places, the feeling that even when a bike lane takes up, you know, one, a, a, a tiny percent of the actual width of the street, there is a widespread sense that it's too much space. And, you know, uh, some, you know, angry truck driver will look over at an empty bike lane on a rainy day and say, well, what is this? You know, who's using this? And the fact is that, you know, because, because bikes don't get stuck in traffic, you know, 30, 40 bikes can move through a lane in a minute and they don't leave much of a trace. You know what I mean? They don't line up honking their horns. Um, so I do think that to some extent, um, they just don't read as busy in the same way that vehicle lanes do, even when it turns out that there are in fact more, more cyclists passing through than, than cars. Um, but, um, the other thing I'd say is that, uh, I think that bike lanes often get unfairly written off as being some sort of like, um, like bauble and symbol of gentrification that's intended to be used only by a certain type of person, like a young white male um, uh, who, who's, who's riding a bike and, and probably not even for, for work, but just, you know, as a sort of a pastime. Um, and that is something that I think advocates need to really work to, to conquer because it's just not true um, that those are the people who primarily ride bikes in cities. Um, like bicycles are um, the, just the, the cheapest way to get around. And, and in New York, and I don't know if this is true in Portland as well, but a lot of food delivery happens on bicycles. And so an enormous share of the cyclists who um, who use the streets in New York are delivering people's food. And they're delivering food to the same people who would probably be the ones protesting against bike lanes and saying, who needs bike lanes? I don't use a bike lane. It's like, oh, did you order takeout? Then you used a bike lane. Um, so, so I, I think that that's, that's an important thing to, to remind people. Um, and, you know, in terms of advocacy and pushing for more, I, I think you need to come armed um, with data that, that shows that there, there, there are lots of people out there who would like to ride, who don't feel comfortable um, and, and underline that the, when a bike lane network is incomplete, it may seem like there's a lot of bike lanes, but if there are gaps, if they don't go to the places people want to go, then that's as good as having a road that just ends. You know what I mean? When the bike lane ends and you get thrown into regular traffic, all of a sudden a trip that you were making with a seven-year-old and a 10-year-old um, doesn't seem feasible at all anymore. Um, even if it's just two or three blocks that have to be done um, with cars going by 40 miles an hour. 
Yeah, I think I don't, I mean, we have some delivery by bike in, in Portland, but I just don't think we have the, the density like in New York for that to happen in, in a very broad area. But I do think that um, I, I can't imagine that this is only happening in Portland. I think one of the problems here is, so I live in Portland in a historically black neighborhood and my neighbors for many years uh, begged for some uh, basic infrastructure improvements, sidewalks, uh, stoplights, um, where that were some particularly sort of known dangerous intersections where kids were crossing to go to school. And some of those infrastructure changes didn't really happen until things were pretty far along and the neighborhood was wealthier and more gentrified. So I think it's a little bit of a chicken and an egg thing. And I completely understand the frustration of my neighbors who, you know, begged for a stoplight for decades. And then it, and then it comes in at the point when a lot of those folks can't afford to live here anymore. And I don't, they're not fighting against it, but, but um, it definitely, I, you know, I, I get their frustration because cities are not, cities I think have to do also a better job of, of making sure that poorer neighborhoods have this infrastructure, uh, you know, even before there are enough wealthier or whiter people living there to be demanding it. Yeah, that that's true. Uh, cities, Many cities have very poor tenant protections, and um, it's really sad to see housing insecurity um, get channeled into resistance to improvements that it really are for everyone, like you know, planting trees or renovating a playground or something like that. Um, and when that kind of work only happens once the neighborhood um, is gentrifying and people are being displaced, then I can understand the anger and um, and the reason people um, feel like you know they they weren't taken seriously until there were um, you know more white people in the neighborhood. Um, but the other thing I'd say is that it it's really um, a symbol of a broken system if we can't make improvements in majority um, black or Latino neighborhoods in say like South LA or something like that. Um, without basic improvements to something like sidewalks or playgrounds being seen as um, stalking horses for, for gentrification. I mean, that is just a complete public policy failure that, um, that people feel like dangerous conditions need to be let um, as they are, um, because if they're not, then it becomes a risk to housing security. Um, so the answer to that question pretty obviously is better protections for tenants lawyers for housing courts, anti-eviction rules, um, et cetera, um, rather, I think, um, than, than deciding that we're, we're just not going to, uh, you know, fix the sidewalk, plant a tree, um, put in a, you know, a safer intersection in one of these places. Well, speaking of infrastructure, uh, one of the things we definitely wanted to talk to you about, and you've been writing, um, and, uh, and talking about quite a bit has been Biden's infrastructure plan and um, specifically what it means for transit, active transportation and bikes. And um, yeah, so I wanted to ask you about that. And I also wanted to start by asking if you have like me been surprised by, by what we're hearing from Pete Buttigieg, um, some of the comments he's been making. I think in the fall, we started to see that he could be a really good uh, 
uh, spokesperson on some of these issues, but I've been um, delighted and then surprised by how pleased I've been to hear some of the comments he's made about uh, getting people out of cars, about racist highways. I mean, it's been, I don't know. Did you, did you see it coming, I guess? <laughs> and then, yeah. Can you just talk a little bit more broadly about the infrastructure plan? Yeah. I don't, I don't want to say I saw it coming, but I did say that when um, the Buddha judge nomination was announced that I thought he would do a good job. Um, I don't think there have ever really been doubts about his um, progressive bona fides on transportation issues. Uh, I think that he, by all accounts, um, did a pretty good job as mayor of South Bend. And also just being a mayor, I think, exposes you to a lot of the tension points um, that govern federal transportation policy, which is to say the way that state highway departments um, you know, wield their might over over cities. Um, that's something that that he would have been familiar with. I think he was a very good mayor of South Bend on transportation issues. Um, he understood the way that, for example, a state highway department could throw its weight around in um, urban planning. He would have understood um, the way that the you know manual on street design determines the fact that we end up with all these sort of suburban style um, roads. And um, he would have understood also the, the emphasis on complete streets, which has been something that local localities have been very interested in doing, but, but there hasn't been a lot of support from the federal government. Um, to say nothing of something like transit, where federal support is primarily for capital improvements rather than operation spending, um, which is actually such a crucial thing to, to actually getting people to ride. So, uh, in short, I'm not surprised that Pete is um, uh, walking the walk, or at least, let's say, talking the talk on um, on transportation policy. And uh, I'm, you know, it's 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 great and sort of uncanny to see a cabinet secretary acknowledge the interstate highway system. I mean, it's just so, it's just weird, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yes, that's yeah. It's it's. It's almost, yeah, it is almost feels a little bit sh shocking in a good way, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, especially, I mean, after four years of Trump, especially, um, but I also don't think that anybody in the Obama administration would have would have said something like this. And, and you know, there were obviously different constraints on kind of things that Obama could say, um, but, but it is great to see Pete talking about this stuff. And then with respect to the infrastructure plan, um, it's huge. It involves lots of things that are not traditionally considered infrastructure, um, including um, elder care, um, as well as some things that I think really should be considered infrastructure, but maybe would not have been, in fact, were not in a Trump plan. So that includes stuff like um, uh, replacing lead pipes, uh, rural broadband, um, that kind of stuff. Um, there's there's quite a bit of talk of um, putting a bunch of money into inner city rail. Um, so those things are all new. Um, I do not know if this is going to become law in the way it was presented. I think these things are typically um, outlined as kind of like a first bid to, to get the, get the conversation going. Um, but I think that progressives and 
people who live in cities and have been yearning for, for example, investment in affordable housing and 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 such things, um, have got to be thrilled at the administration's decision to go big uh, on that front. I mean, I think affordable housing is maybe like the largest single line item in the whole thing. A few a few weeks ago on the podcast, we um, chatted with Peter Flax, who was the editor of Bicycling Magazine for many years, and he commented that if like a local council person was saying some of the things that Secretary Pete has been saying, that everybody would be freaking out. But Pete seems to be getting away with some of this and saying it at a at a national level. Some of the stuff that we would love to hear, even our our local folks saying and it's so interesting to go yeah from from um the trump administration to now feeling like i mean you know here in oregon we're i mean we're usually on the more liberal end of things and to now feel like we are wishing for example that our state highway department you know could be even as close to a sort of liberal sounding as the federal government now is a really strange, uh, wonderful, but kind of strange shift in this all. So, yeah, it's, it's so weird. You know, it, it reminds me of, you know, it's not, it's not the only, um, let's think of it this way. There are subjects on which the federal government is famously more liberal than localities. I'm thinking of something like civil rights or fair house, fair housing law is a great example, right? Like, when the Fair Housing Act was passed in 1968, it directly overrode a lot of city and state ordinances, even in um, deep blue. Well, they weren't blue then, but, you know, in, even in Democratic strongholds um, that that gave um, brokers and sellers the right to discriminate um, and, and landlords the right to discriminate. Um, so that, you know, that was an instance. And I think the 60s generally were a time when there was this incredible liberal consensus in Washington that often um, made uh, Democrats at the local level look like they were um, reactionary. And uh, to some extent, the elevation of, 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 of Buttigieg in particular has created um, a funny scenario where I think that is the case on transportation um, specifically, where he really is um, – as I say, like, you know, he's saying things that I would uh, write for Slate, but that, again, like, you wouldn't hear from a local politician. Um, and I don't know what to tell you. I think that maybe as a cabinet secretary, you have a kind of freedom to uh, to speak your mind about this stuff. You know, um, he doesn't actually get to say no more highways. Uh, we'll see what happens with this, this Houston expansion, I-45, because I know you're dealing with the freeway expansion proposal in Portland as well. But I-45 in Houston is just happening on a massive, massive scale. I mean, this is an $8 billion project. Um, and people in Houston say it's the largest highway expansion they may see in their lifetimes. And the USDOT has basically paused the project. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see how that gets resolved. It's very exciting, and I hope state DOTs are just quaking in their boots for any of them that have any highway expansion projects uh, that they're that they're 
trying to make happen right now. It would be great to see the federal government really pushing, pushing the kind of change I think we really need to see at the state DOT level. Yeah, yeah, it would be, it would be. Um, well, so we had a, a question from one of our listeners, Tim Mooney, who said, does the current political environment make it more or less likely that the infrastructure spending has a chance to be generational in impact? And Tim also wanted to know, do you th- how much, to what degree will it emphasize transportation infrastructure that de-emphasizes fossil fuels and emphasizes human-powered transportation? So if you were going to read the tea leaves a little bit, do you think that, I mean, generational, so do you think this is going to be as big as many of us, I think, are, are hoping it'll be in this political climate? I think that if the Democrats decide that they're going to do it alone, um, then we are probably talking about a generational investment in things um, like clean water, um, uh, in, in, in things like, you know, lead-free pipes in Rust Belt cities and in public housing in New York and in um, affordable housing everywhere in elder care. Like, those are things um, where I think you are, and in, in mass transit, I think that potentially this is the kind of bill that could create um, projects on the scale of, say, a BART or a MARTA or a WMATA, like, you know, those big, um, you know, now some of the nation's best mass transit systems in the case of BART and, and WMATA in Washington, they were created as a result of federal investment in the early 1970s. So I do think that that's possible um, if the Democrats decide to go it alone. In terms of um, the impact on human-powered transportation, I think that there's a certain type of um, progressive who will be or or urbanist, I should say, who will be disappointed to find, again, the overwhelming emphasis on electric cars, um, as opposed to really any thought of, like, how we're going to stop driving so much. Um, electric cars, obviously, only as clean as the fuel um, that comes uh, that sort of goes into your uh, sockets and in the Pacific Northwest, you have very clean fuel, but that is not the case in uh, much of the rest of the country. And again, the fleet turnover, even with a lot of stimulus directed at electric car infrastructure is pretty slow. So we're still looking at another 40 or 50 years of gas powered cars on the road. Um, so I think that the, it's unfortunate that there's so much emphasis on the transition to electrics and not on the transition to how can we drive less. Um, but that said, there is one other provision in there, which is the the, the prospect of awarding, um, uh, tying uh, federal funding to relaxing exclusionary housing rules, which would potentially pave the way for more infill housing in some places that have rejected it. I'm thinking of suburbs of San Francisco, of Boston, of New York. These are places that haven't built new housing in two generations. And they're sitting on top of some of the most valuable land in the country, not to mention some really terrific transit infrastructure. So um, if the Biden bill can unlock housing growth in those places, um, then maybe that's in its way uh, an investment in walkable places um that, that that could be had for 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 virtually no cost at all 
um, the private market will just sort of take care of it itself. That would, um, yeah, that would be that would be something to see. Well, I wanna I wanna shift back to talking a little bit more just about about uh, biking, about riding your bike. So did you? So you said that you um, started uh, kind of biking around the city as in high school. Was that in Was that in New York? Yeah, I grew up in Lower Manhattan and went to school in Brooklyn. So um, some mornings. I would ride my bicycle over the Brooklyn Bridge um, to get to high school, which was about as uh, about as as good a commute um, as you can imagine. And it was not lost on me, even as a sixteen year old, um, how cool that was. What are what are um, your favorite? What's your least and most favorite thing about biking in New York? Because honestly, oh. I will say that I can't, I, I mean, I, I even grew up in upstate and I've spent a little bit of time in New York City, but I never on a bike, so. Well, you know, there was a time when it was considered a kind of um, uh, adventure sport, you know, it was a, it was, it was a kind of something you do for the rush of adrenaline. And I'm happy to say that those days are over in a lot of the city because there actually is a pretty good network of, of bike lanes that enable you to sort of make your um, commute in a slightly more relaxed fashion. I mean, you, you still have to worry about cars turning across you um, and the sort of regular indignities and hazards that we all put up with as bikers in a system designed for cars. Um, but it's not what it was in the nineties. That is for sure. Um, what do I, uh, what do I like about it? Um, you know, let me count the ways <laughs> it's, uh, I think my favorite part of it is, is, is biking as a way to experience the city. So it's, it's moving through this space at this pace where just you're able to see so much, um, so quickly. I mean, I think a 20 minute bike ride can give you, a, a visual, sort of stimulus that's just so extraordinary and concentrated uh and not just true in new york but especially in new york where you can just see you literally see thousands of faces and buildings um just sort of flying by you and it, it's 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 hard to keep your eyes on the road sometimes you know there's just there's so much to look at and every time i i go for a ride i feel um kind of rejuvenated by, um, by the sights and the sounds. And, um, it's, 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 it's always a thrill. Um, and obviously the, the, the worst thing about it is the, the constant risk of injury. I think I uh, often, you know, I think like many bikers, I, I spend my time divided between trying to convince my friends to get a bike and ride a bike because it's the best thing ever. And wondering if in good conscience, I can, um, introduce someone to an activity that, that has such comes with such great risks and, um, and unnecessary risk, which is really the, that is the part that really, you know, makes me angry, um, is that it does not need to be so dangerous. There could be small and quick fixes that we could do tomorrow, um, to, to reduce, uh, reduce injuries and, and fatalities and, and convince more people um, to get out on their bike. A, f a few years ago, I, um, took the train up to Vancouver, BC and 
uh, with my bike, because here it's great. You can actually just walk your bike up to the baggage car and they hang it on and you hang it on the hook so you don't have to pack it or anything like that. Went to BC and just rode uh, my bike around Vancouver with my friend for a few days there. And the bike infrastructure was so much better in Vancouver than it is in Portland. It was so easy to get around. It was everywhere. uh, And it was protected in many places. It wasn't just paint. And I spent the whole trip appreciating it so much. And like also just being so kind of frustrated that, you know, sort of like if even Portland can't do this, then, you know, uh, I mean, Portland's really kind of been resting on its bikey laurels, I think for, for a few years, but, um, yeah, it, it it feels sometimes like it wouldn't take that much for cities to be able to make it much better and much safer for us to be on our bikes. I I agree with you. It it does feel like it is. Um, it's not like um, affordable housing, for example, which is just a really um, challenging and expensive issue, right? It's not something that cities can do alone. We can't, we can't just, you know, raise taxes on the, you know, hundred thousand people who live in some small city and then um, build thousands and thousands of units of affordable housing. It's just not possible, right? It has to happen at a larger scale, which naturally requires more consensus building and it makes everything more complicated. And bike infrastructure is not like that. Like it could be done tomorrow. Um, and as discouraging as we may find that, I think that is also a reason for hope um, because you know that we're only, um, each of us in our own cities, uh, you know, one visionary and dedicated politician away from, from a sea change, which I think really could be unlocked. Um, I, I was saying that thing about latent demand. There's a survey of New York out there somewhere that says that, um, I think 25% of New Yorkers own a bike and you might think, well, it's New York. It's different. New York has advantages for bike riding in that it's dense and compact and car ownership is low, but there are also substantial disadvantages. Everybody lives in really small apartments and often you have to walk up the stairs to get into them. Um, So the fact that there are so many people who own bikes and ride bikes in this city um, and yet they are a relatively small presence um, on a lot of the streets says to me that people really just do not feel safe riding their bikes on the streets. And again, um, all it's going to take is basically a little bit of paint and, you know, some plungers. I mean, you've seen these sort of like tactical urbanism DIY bike lanes that sprout up from time to time. Um, this is not rocket science, right? Um, one um, thing I've seen that I thought made me kind of excited was that one of the mayoral candidates in New York, Andrew Yang, um, is a bike rider. Um, and he posts videos of himself riding his bike. And I'm not going to comment on his other policies or anything else in the New York mayoral's, uh, mayoral race, but I will just say, moving from a mayor who doesn't apparently even know how to ride a bike to one who actually rides a bike in the city, to me, that is actually the most important change for biking policy because biking is one of those things where until you do it it's really hard to explain both the sheer joy and the facility of it and the way that everything just sort of pops into this this new bike centered grid um for you 
and then on the flip side, obviously the risk and the danger and the fear um, and anger when, you know, one of our own uh, is, is taken from us uh, before their time by a driver um, who's out of control on a street um, that's not designed for biking. So, um, so again, I mean, that just makes me, you know, quietly optimistic that if you get a mayor who gets it, um, it wouldn't be that hard to change the status quo. That's a thank you for that very optimistic way of of, of looking at that. I um I also think our listeners would be interested to know what your um what your sort of main in town bike is. Well, I actually have two. Um, <laughs> I have well, I've, I have a city bike key, which is a key to our bike share program, which um which uh, I like when I'm um, out and about. Um, my uh, commuter bike, which I used to ride to the office every day, is a Tokyo bike. Have you heard of that, Mark? Yes, there's. I've seen. I've seen some. There. Well, the one I've seen is. I'm. They're. They're really cute city bikes. I don't mean cute. Maybe that's not. Maybe I. I, I don't know. No, I agree. They're, they're kind of. They're. They're. They're sort of a twee, maybe like Wes yeah. Anderson <laughs> set kind of style. Um, but but it's it's great. It's light. It's so um, easy to maneuver. Um, it's really it accelerates really fast. Um, and uh, I am going on uh, now four years um, without having had it stolen. So knock on wood, Ooh. that streak keeps going because um, there's always a balance, right, with bicycles. Uh, mm-hmm. You 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 love to ride a nice bike, but a bike is only as good as um, as your comfort level locking it up outside a bar or a movie theater or something like that, right? Because, I mean, if this is a, an item that's so precious to you that you're not actually going to use it to get from place to place, then it becomes something else. And uh, for that purpose, I have a different bike, which is um, a hand-me-down from my dad, um, his old uh, Bianchi, um, which is a clip-in bike, which I ride um, for longer rides if I'm going to you know, go out into the country or something like that. Yeah, with the quarantine and uh, you know the, the inside being closed, it's actually been nicer not to have to decide for myself which bike to take. Like, do I take my nice bike or do I take my bar bike? You know, I can take my nice bike because I know I'm not going in anywhere. I'm not going to be locking it up for hours. It's always going to be right there. I have, I, I, I have had the exact same thought. Like, there was a whole period this summer where I was like, "Wow, I really can ride my Bianchi around the city because I don't have to worry." about everybody going to a bar (laughs) we're all going to be outside the whole time yeah i have a my main town bike is a 1975 raleigh that's super beat up and um and it's a mixed d and i swapped out uh the drop bars uh for for upright bars but it never i mean i love my bike i paid two hundred dollars for it and have since put a, a lot of money in well not a lot some money into it but um it it, it i mean i think bike theft is often a, a crime of opportunity but if you were going to choose the bike to steal it does not look like the mo- it's never going to look like the nicest bike on the rack <laughs> it's never going to be <laughs> the shiniest or fanciest <laughs> Like I'm not, yeah, I'm not worried about locking it up to a bike rack, anything like that. So, you know, those Tokyo bikes, those do seem like really nice bikes and they aren't super expensive either. Are they? No, I think mine is about six fifty or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, your view on whether that's expensive or not 
you know, obviously you can get a bike for 125 bucks. Um, but for me, uh, I was riding this thing every day to and from work, um, basically every month of the year. So, um, so I wanted something that I really loved and I, and I, and I really love that bike. Um, don't get to ride it as much now because I don't have that many reasons to leave the house every day. Um, but you know, hopefully we're, we're, we'll soon be getting back to a time when, um, when there's, there's, there's plenty of, uh, plenty of opportunities to, to, to ride that bike again. Someday, someday we'll leave our houses <laughs> again. Um, well, Henry, I think, um, I think this might be a, a good place, uh, to, to wrap up here. It's been just a real treat to have you on the show. Thanks so much for talking to us about all of these things. It's great to talk to you. And I, I think, um, you know, your writing is really influential to me in the way I think about a lot of these things uh, around um, cities, basically around cities. So thanks for that. And I would just encourage all of our listeners, if they're not familiar with your work, to read it, because I think it's just aligned really well with the kinds of things we talk about here on the Sprocket podcast. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you guys. What can compare with the thrill of a brand new bike? I like my bike, it's fast. I like my bike, it's fast. I like my bike, it's fast. It circles around the city lights. Okay, so just one headline this week. We'll also link to that Bike Portland piece uh, that, that talks about what Maria's doing with Hill hill killers but uh, uh jay Lecko sent sent us a link to a video from the bbc world service so thank you jay cycling across europe in the pandemic over a billion euros have been invested in cycling across europe since the start of the pandemic some of the continent's biggest cities are being transformed as people seek alternative safer greener ways to move around anna holligan travels across europe to see how People are getting on their bikes and asks if the surge in cycling is the start of a much bigger change in the way we travel. I started to watch it, but I haven't finished it yet. What do you think, Armando? I haven't seen it yet. You know what it reminds me of um, uh, is our friend PJ, who would take these trips in Europe where they ride a train to a place and then the train stops and then they all get out on their bikes and go tour in that area and then come back that night and then take the train to the next area. Um, that just sounds awesome to do. That would be fun. Yeah, I am definitely wanting to continue to incorporate bicycling into my vacations. So yeah, whether, to, whether, yeah, we I, I was going to say our, whether in Europe or anywhere, but I'm not well, going anywhere. Our Sprocket podcast tour, remember? We have to yeah, that's this. right. That's supposed to be that's coming right. up. Yeah, so now what we're going to have to do is ride our bikes all over the U.S. and pick up all of our folks along the way. And then somehow we will not take a plane and we will go to Europe and we will visit um, Caroline and Bristol. And then we're going to go to Paris now. And yeah, we've got lots of places to go. If somebody wants to get on these logistics, that would be great. (laughs) Okay, and just uh, we do have a tiny bit of mail also from Jay Lecko, but they are questions for Guthrie on tools and some comments. And so we are going to hold off on that till Guthrie can actually answer them because he had some questions and I barely 
I didn't even really understand the question. But thanks so much to folks who write in or call in. Uh, send us an email at the Sprocket Podcast at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 503-847-9774. Uh, if you want to give us some, I don't know, questions, comments, that sort of thing, we'd love to hear from you. Yes, I was excited to get some of those uh, questions and comments. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Should we, uh, should we get the end? Wrap it up. <laughs> yep. Nope, oh, that's mail. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I push some of these buttons sometimes and they don't turn off. Some, at some point, a snake or jack-in-the-box is going to just spring out of the... <laughs> <laughs> That'll be exciting. I can't read that. Okay. I think I know which button it is. The Sprocket Podcast is produced at home until we can gather safely indoors. Remember indoors with other people? Our website is thesprocketpodcast.com. Email to the Sprocket Podcast at gmail.com. Call or text to 503-847-9774. Twitter and Instagram at Sprocket Podcast. Thanks to Ryan J. Lane for our theme music. Kurt Bird for our headline sounder. Marcus Norman for graphic design. And thanks to the generous support of our Patreon supporters and listeners. Shadowfoot, Wayne Norman, Eric Iverson. Cameron Lean, Richard Wodzinski, Tim Mooney. Glenn Kubish, Matt Kelly, Eric Weiss. Doug Cohen-Miller, Todd Parker, Chris Smith. Caleb Jenkinson, J.P. Cooley, Peanut Butter Jar Matt. Marco Lowe, Rich Otterstrom, Andrew in Colorado. Drew the Welder, Anna, Andre Johnson. King of Division, Richard G., Guthrie Straw. Aaron Green, author of We Were Like Sons and founder of The Regranary. Campsite, Mac Nurse David, Nathan Poulton. Rory in Michigan, Jeremy Kitchen, David Belay. Tim Coleman, Harry Hugel, E.J. Finnernan. Brad Hipwell, Thomas Skadow, Keith Hutchison. Ranger Tom, Joyce Wilson, Ryan Tam. Jason Oftenberg, Microcosm Publishing, David Moore. Todd Grosbeck, Chris Barron. Chris Barron. Chris Barron. Chris Barron. Simon Baird. Oops, sorry. Sean Baird. Simon Pace. Gregory Braithwaite. Ryan Morrow. Dude Luna. Hey, that's me. Emma Rooks. Cacao. Cacao. Marshall Paula at Funatake Cycle Craft. Philip M. Spartandale. Mr. T, who never really left. Bike Initiative Kiwana, Sarah G. Adam D. Go Dig a Ho, Beth Hammond. Greg Murphy, Myra Martinez, Oso. Isaac M. David Christensen, 503. Byron Patterson, Kirsten Graham, Aaron G., Rachel Moline. And welcome back to our newest and returning donor, Jimmy Diesel. And thanks to all of our former donors who helped us get this far. Now wash your hands. And wear your mask. Wear it.